Amen. All right, well, last time uh, we were together as a congregation, uh, two weeks ago, uh, I mentioned how we need to begin to equip our church to be winsome and resilient disciples in a post-Christian world. And what I mean by that is that it is good that churches teach what the Bible says about issues in this world. It is also good that when you go out into the world, you know what belongs to light and you know what belongs to darkness. But I think if we only do that, it leaves you as a believer in a very difficult situation. If you are that school teacher who has given your life to public school teaching and you love Jesus and all of a sudden you're handed this curriculum that you got to teach that goes against your conscience, you all of a sudden find yourself in a very hard context and situation. Because maybe your church has taught you what is right and what is wrong, but maybe they need to begin to equip you of, well, you can't just quit. You can. You don't want to just offend everybody because then you'll fail to be salt and light. So how do you do your job? If you work in HR, you know, enough said, I don't even have to say another word, that you are in a very difficult context. We are no longer ministering and living in the Billy Graham era. The Billy Graham era was an era where even if you weren't a Christian, you would see Christianity and Catholicism or religion in general as a respectable option. You would live in a society where you would say, hey, I don't believe in Christianity, but you go do your thing. You're a Christian? Yeah, that's, that was the Billy Graham era where in our nation, if you simply said you were a Christian, at least it was somewhat respectable even if people didn't agree with you. But we are entering a day where it's harder and harder to even say that you believe you're a Christian or that you believe in Jesus or you go to church. And so how do we, one, hold our convictions, but at the same time not retreat from the world that we're called to be salt and light in, at the same time, not go out and just be so uh, offensive to everyone where we fail to build those bridges where Jesus has called us to make disciples of this, this world. How do we live? And I, I, I think it, the, the passage has a text I have to preach, but each and every week, you know, I think we need to say something. Okay, so we as a church will begin to do this one step at a time. Uh, and when we get to the application, I'll say more about this and we'll say more in the weeks to come. But get ready because come October you'll see some of these changes slowly begin to take place in our church within our ministries. Today, in light of the topic of discipleship, we're talking about false discipleship because we find ourselves in the passage uh, in John's gospel, which we've been studying the gospel of John, where Jesus identifies Judas Iscariot as his betrayer. Judas turned away from Christ because Christ failed to meet his expectations. Let me say that again. Judas turned away from Christ because Christ failed to meet his expectation. It's not because Satan forced Judas to betray Christ. You will see that Satan enters Judas, but after Judas makes a decision. And for those of you who know our church, you know me, uh, I am a Calvinist, but it's not because Judas was somehow a robot who had no free decision-making. Judas is fully responsible for his sin and his betrayal of Christ, but mainly we know it's because Jesus Christ failed to meet his expectations. I think we would all agree that failed expectations lead to disappointment and resentment. This is true of any relationship, be it friendship, marriage, I'm not talking about that today, but some of you, you're really resentful in marriage and you've become bitter because your spouse has failed to meet your expectations. Now, that's not what I want to talk about this today, but if the Holy Spirit has used that to hit you, then that's collateral damage. Thank you for the Holy Spirit and you need to work on that, all right? But that's what we're going to talk about. But it makes the point. Any friendship, any relationship, any employment situation False expectations lead to disappointment and resentment. And the same is true for your relationship with Jesus Christ. For instance, if you expect Jesus to give you an easier life, you will surely be disappointed. Because Jesus doesn't promise an easy life, but here's what he promises you. In a world of difficulty, he will be with you. 
He will walk with you. He will empower you to get through the trials of life, right? And so Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, that you will have suffering in this world, but then he grants us internal peace. You see, if you have false expectations like Judas did of who Christ is and what he offers, you will turn away from him. Which means you never truly believed in the real Jesus to begin with. If you turn away from Jesus, then you really didn't understand who it is that you decided to follow and what he was calling you to in terms of Christianity. And this was the case with Jesus. Rather, Judas, I mean. This was the case with Judas. Rather than giving his heart to Christ, Judas was given over to what he expected to receive from Christ, and he did not respect receive what he expected. I've entitled our message today, Betrayed. False disciple, false expectations. No, it's not an HBO TV special. It is a real story. Betrayed. False disciple, false expectations. So if you have God's word, meet me now in John chapter 13. John 13, we are going to look at verses 18 to 30. John 13, verses 18 to 30. I'll have the passage up on the screen for you, but I do invite you to open it up yourself just so you know that I'm not lying to you. All right, well, the big idea this morning, we'll start with this. Today, I want to speak to this idea that Jesus came to fulfill God's plan, not the expectations of man. Jesus came to fulfill God's plan, not the expectations of man. And in fact, when Jesus predicts that Judas is going to betray him, it is in fulfillment of God's plan. That's the first point we're going to see. So in verses 18 to 20, we see point number one today is that Jesus is is betrayed in fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus is betrayed in fulfillment of Scripture. Now let me read to you verses 18 to 20. And again, listen to this as I read this into your hearing. This is what Jesus, our Lord, says. He says in verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. Quote, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, end quote. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it takes place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one Who sent me? You see, in verse 18, Jesus is, the context is Jesus is sharing an intimate meal with his 12 disciples. This is his inner circle. These are his, these are going to be his apostles. These are the ones who he's going to empower with the Spirit to lead and launch the church. And our Lord, what he does is he cites a scripture. He cites Psalm 41, verse 9, which we attribute to King David of the Old Testament. And here's what it says in Psalm 41, verse 9. It reads, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. In other words, David said... Someone who is close to me, what does it mean to lift his heel against me? Someone who's close to me, who I shared intimate meals with, has kicked me while I was down and out. So my friend, instead of being there for me, has decided to kick me in the back while I was down and out. That's the meaning of Psalm 41 verse 9. And so what Jesus is saying is that he in his life, when Judas betrays him, he's going to fully fulfill what David experienced a shadow of in David's life. So in Psalm 41, verse 9, King David speaks of betrayal from a close friend. Could be speaking of Absalom, could be someone else. But someone who ate his bread. Now fast forward to John's gospel. Now the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, is going to be betrayed by a close friend. Now sharing bread was a common symbol of friendship back then. The idea of, you've heard the language, let's break bread together. 
Now, when you say that, you're speaking of friendship. You're extending friendship. You're building friendship. Meals were something that you shared with people that you had close fellowship with. And so the fact that Jesus shares a meal with Judas, and the fact that, and get this symbol, that actually Jesus hands Judas a piece of bread, even though he knows that Judas is going to betray him, it heightens the evil of Judas's betrayal. Now, notice verse 19 which we read, it says on the day of his betrayal, Jesus, he wants his disciples to look back and to look back and remember. Remember that I predicted my betrayal. Remember that I'm telling you exactly how I'm going to betray, who's going to betray me, right? And he wants his disciples to understand that, hey, he's the son of God, that he predicts what is going to happen, and he actually is fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. And what we walk away with is this clear theological teachings, this teaching that Jesus is in full control. He's in full sovereign control over his arrest, over his tri trial, over his crucifixion, and he wants his disciples to remember. In the moment when you are afraid, in the moment when you think that I'm leaving you, so get this, Christian leader in the marketplace. Get this, Christian worker. Get this, Christian parent. When you're trying to deal with your children and they're going to school and they're coming back with these crazy ideas, get this, what Jesus said to us, what he's going to elaborate on in John 14, 15, and 16, that I did not leave you. Remember that I told you that I would be betrayed. Remember, I'm telling you that I'm going to the cross. And he wants his first disciples to understand, remember that I'm predicting Everything that's going to happen, I'm in sovereign control. I will not leave you alone. And he wants his disciples to remember that he is the son of God, right? And that's in contrast to the false discipleship of Judas. And so in verse 20, Jesus makes it really clear, and he presents that hard teaching again. He says, if you're truly my disciples, you have to receive me and everything that comes with the whole package, and it says in verse 20, right, verse 20 is very clear. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one that I send receives me. And that's God the Father sends, right, God the Father sends Jesus. And then later Jesus will send his Holy Spirit. Whoever receives me and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. If you receive Christ, then you receive God, God the Father, right? And so the true believer receives Jesus Christ. And they receive the discipleship that Jesus calls us to, which is not an easy life. It's not an easy life. It's a life that comes with a cost. It's the cost of following Christ. But many times there is this false belief, and this false belief is, quote, I want to receive Jesus' saving work, but I don't want him to be in control over my work, end quote. That's the type of thinking, right? I want... Jesus' crucifixion on the cross for my sins, but I don't want my life to be crucified unto him. And or, I receive Jesus' offer of salvation, but I reject his call to discipleship. And that's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of the fact, not that it's a bad thing that churches have generated lots of good programs for people, but again, it's harder and harder. It's gonna be harder and harder to be a Christian. Now, if you're an older generation saint, if you're 50 plus, uh, I think you're okay, right? I mean, you, you've grown up in a world where Christianity is, hasn't always been easy, and you're seeing the trials come. But if you're really trying to raise children in this generation, then it is our baton to take. It is our fight. Not a fight in an antagonistic way uh, towards the world. Remember, we're called to be salt and light in this world of darkness. We're called to engage the world with winsomeness and love. But this is our battle. These are our children. These are, the youth are looking to us as well. This is our battle. This is our time now. So as the world gets darker and darker, we need to shine brighter and brighter, but in a winsome way. And so I, I do think if people go to these churches, uh, including a church like ours that offers all these wonderful programs, you know, sign up your kids for this, come, uh, come sit in a worship service, then uh, go to a small group and just participate in it and get some fellowship. And I think that's great. Go to Sunday school and consume some information and go back. Uh, that's not equipping you for the real dark world. That's really great. Again, that's all good stuff. But you might say when you encounter difficulty that what if eventually we get to the point where if you want to be a Christian, you can't keep a certain job. And so the financially, that financial comfort begins to be 
pushed down upon? What about the safety of your children? What if your children uh, happen to wear a church shirt to school and all of a sudden there's some other teenagers who then begin to bully them? Then, and then you're, you're looking at your safety that in 1980 and 1990, right, and in the year 2000, you can be a Christian and it's not comfortable, but you're okay. But now we're in 2022 and we're, you know, ramping up to 2030 and it's not safe anymore. So then you see this whole suburban Christianity of, of you can be financially secure and physically safe and you can be respectable in this world and still say I'm a Christian. And if churches continue to just have these types of Sunday Christianity types of programs where volunteers are signing up and running, you're really not making the resilient disciple. And while there will be many who are true believers, all of a sudden, once the darkness comes down and presses upon us, there will be many who said, Jesus, that's not what I sign up for. And my church never told me that it was going to be this hard. And that's what I meant last time. We cannot afford to simply just run consumer programs. We can't afford to simply know what's wrong with this world and go out with an antagonistic attitude. And we can't depend on the government or politics to do what the kingdom of God can do. Only those with spiritual resources can do the spiritual work. Only the church can be the church. And so we must be the church. And so that's what Jesus is saying. If you receive him, you got to receive everything that comes of him. And Judas wanted to receive parts of Jesus. He, he wants to receive the Jesus that's going to come back in the book of Revelation, but not the Jesus of the Gospels. So that's what I mean. We're speaking to this idea today. Are you tracking with me? Okay, I, I know we're a conservative church, so you guys don't give me amens and something like that. So I've got to tell Siri to talk to me. So my Siri is telling me right now, Pastor, keep preaching. Amen, preach it, because you guys are silent, okay? So, all right. Thank you. Praise God. I guess I've got to keep going. So today we're, we're speaking again to this idea, and Judas needed to hear this idea that Jesus came to accomplish his will, not ours. His plan, not Jesus' plan. God's plan, I mean not Judas' plan. God's plan, not Judas' timeline for the kingdom of God. Right? And so that leads to point number two. Point number two is Jesus is betrayed by a false disciple. Jesus is betrayed by a false disciple. This is a disciple nonetheless. This is someone who's close to Jesus. So hear me now. This is someone who's around Christians around church, benefiting from other Christians, maybe even experienced the miracles of Christ, tasted his bread, seen his healing, experienced his teaching, but his heart, he's not a true believer, but he's around Jesus. He's, he, he, Judas would be considered in the South church folk, right? Judas would be church folk, and so now let's see what happens first in 21 to 22. After saying these things, verse 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirits, and I believe he's troubled because he loved Judas. Our Messiah truly loved even his enemies. Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you one of you, one of my friends, one of you who I've loved and I've walked with, and, and you can see his heart, Judas, you know that I love you. You're going to betray me. <clears throat> then verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Because to his disciples, it was inconceivable for his other disciples to think that one of us? No way. One of us is going to turn on our master? There is no way. Notice that he's troubled. This speaks to the fact that Jesus Christ is 100% God, 100% man. He is 100% God, and you see that on display in the fact that he knows who his betrayer is and that he's going to get betrayed. But he's 100% man in the fact that he does have emotions, and his heart does hurt, and he does consider this guy who I love. And just, just think of someone who you love. A close friend is going to turn on you. And this is what I mean. Even though we believe in the sovereignty of God and the sovereign plan of God, there's a divine mystery that Judas is fully responsible. 
And so, so I'm, I'm reading this. I'm like praying. I'm like, did, did Judas have a chance? It seems like even though he's the son of perdition, could he have repented? I mean, could he have? And, and I think nobody really knows the, the divine mystery of God. But it seems that if Peter, who betrays Christ, could come back, it seems like at some point, maybe Judas, even after he accomplished the, the, the thing of betraying Jesus, could he have come back and begged Jesus to forgive him? We have to believe that if the gospel is true, that Judas could have, but he didn't. And so I want you to see his heart. It's not Satan that did it. His heart is so hardened because, he, because Jesus disappointed him. So now I want you to think of those relationships where you have these expectations that this is what it's going to be like. And then because your expectations are not met, you start to get resentful. And that resentment, if you don't deal with that resentment, it turns into bitterness. And bitterness turns into what? A hard heart. And so Judas's heart would grow hardened towards Christ. Now look at verses 23 to 25. It says, one of his disciples. Notice the emphasis that John gives us. It's not one of the Romans. It's not one of the religious leaders. It's one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Look at that emphasis. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at Jesus' side. Right? So, so this is John here. This is John here. One of his disciples. So you see the contrast? Judas was also one of his disciples. Judas was also someone that Jesus loved. But here's John. Here's another one. And John doesn't identify himself. I don't know why. This is like a humble brag. This is kind of like a humble brag. I guess it was socially acceptable in New Testament times. Why don't you just say, I, the author of this, uh, this gospel, was sitting next to Jesus. But instead, he's like, one of his disciples, I won't tell you who, <laughs> but the one whom Jesus loved, I won't tell you who. He's, this is John, the apostle, talking about himself. I was next to Jesus, so he's reclining. And so Simon Peter motioned him, so you can imagine, so John's next to Jesus. Simon's like, so if you're listening to this on the podcast, you won't know what I'm doing, but he's like, ask him. Ask him who? You're next to him, ask him who? Right? So it's kind of motioned him to ask, who's he talking about? So that disciple, again, why don't you just identify yourself, John? You know, so that disciple leaning back to Jesus, hey, Jesus, who is it? Now, you kind of have to kind of understand, we are all messed up because of Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci, right? Leonardo, not the Ninja Turtle, but the artist, right? He, he messed us up because he, he has this famous painting. I'm not even going to throw it up there, right? It's called The Last Supper. And they're sitting at what? What are they sitting at? A table, so if you're reclining at a table, that's just straight rude in Western culture, right? You don't recline at a table on a chair. But how they ate back then, I'm not going to do it here, you know, because I won't be able to get back up, right? But basically, <laughs> I'm getting old. But basically, you know, you basically recline to eat like this, okay? And most likely, you're leaning on your left side so that with your right hand, you could eat, you know, dip the bread, eat your lamb, you know, whatever it is that, that Jewish people did back then. That's That's... Middle Eastern culture back then. And so if Jesus is reclining here, then you could imagine that to his right, so, so this is my right, but you're looking at me, this is your left, but to his right, okay, would be John. And so John would simply lean back, hey, Jesus, who are you talking about? But then if we're calculating correctly, the late, great James Montgomery Boyce in his expositional commentary on John's gospel infers that to his left, is Judas. And that makes sense that John's the one chilling here saying, hey, Jesus, who is it? And Jesus, he dips the bread and says, it's the one that I'm going to hand the bread to. Right? Hands it this way. And Judas is reclining this way, takes it. So that's kind of the setting. You can kind of see that that's what's happening. Now you see this in verses 26 to 27. It says in verse 26, Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I dipped it. So Jesus baptizes the bread. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Notice the full name. 
Verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him, and Jesus said, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, a couple things we got to point out here. Notice the full name, Judas, uh, the, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, Judas was a common name. In fact, it's so bad that Jesus had another disciple named Judas. Did you know that? So Jesus has multiple disciples named Judas. Now, what would you think if you're the other Judas? Like, how do you introduce yourself? Hey, hi, nice to meet you. My name's Judas, not Iscariot. You know, uh, my name's Judas, not Benedict Arnold. My name's Judas, not the traitor, right? And so actually in John 14, verse 22, just take a peek, take a peek, okay? Just turn over. In John 14, 22, there, there's a discussion, and this other Judas is identified with a parenthesis. It says, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And so forever, this other disciple named Judas would have to introduce himself as I'm not the betrayer. So that's why, you know, the full name is listed here, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. It's this specific Judas that betrays Jesus. Now I want you to notice verse 27. Look at verse 27. Verse 27, it says, notice the order. After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Now understand that the gospel was not complete yet at this point. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross. He hadn't resurrected to the dead. But how I wish somebody would have preached the gospel to Judas. Judas, don't take the bread. Judas, don't take the bread. Just, just wait. Matthew's going to write about it, Judas. Just don't take the bread. Because what Matthew tells us, in Matthew 26, 25, it shows you how deceived Judas is. When, when, when Jesus is going around saying, hey, one of you guys is going to betray me, Judas actually plays the part. He actually says, so how he, is it I, Rabbi? Judas, you already know. But Judas is like, is it I, Rabbi? Is it me, Master? And so Matthew doesn't tell us, you know, uh, that Judas like gets up and leaves. But when you look at Matthew 26, it, it, it goes from Judas pretending that he's a genuine disciple, being the traitor, to the very next passage, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. So in many ways, when Judas takes the bread, he's taking the bread of condemnation. But if he would have just not taken the bread and said, you know what, Jesus, I have these selfish thoughts and you've let me down, but I am so sorry. I want to betray you. Will you forgive me? He would have received the bread, not of condemnation, but of communion. I mean, but again, there's no gospel complete at this point. Jesus hasn't died for sins yet. He hasn't resurrected. I'm just looking at Judas, and his heart is completely consumed with selfishness, greed, and his, he's bent on going through with it, betraying his master for 30 pieces of silver. If only someone would have preached the gospel, but the gospel wasn't there yet. If you're thinking of walking away from Christ, we do have the gospel. I mean, I just wish somebody have, was, would have went to Judas and said, Judas, you are so guilty now because of what you did. And that you're going to go by this field and hang yourself. Someone, I wish somebody would have preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to Judas and say, you don't have to hang yourself. Because if you will repent, you will look up and see a Savior who was hung on a tree for you. And even you who betrayed Christ can repent. Case in point is Peter. Peter, who cursed Jesus, came back. Are there any Judases here today? I want you to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. That I also, oh, how I wish somebody would preach the gospel to Judas, but it's too late. It's too late. So when Judas takes the bread, it's almost like sealing the deal. Because at that point, Satan enters him. And that's what I mean, right? Judas is not controlled by Satan. But once he makes the final decision to say, I am going to go through with this. I'm going to betray Christ. Even though Jesus is you know, giving this bread, the symbol of love, I'm eating with him. Judas decides, I'm going to betray Jesus. And once he makes that decision, it says, Satan entered him. Aorist tense. It just happened. 
It's just a snapshot picture of what happened. The aorist tense is that Satan entered him. And at this point, he is possessed by Satan. But I want you to see once again the sovereignty of God. And this is the divine mystery. Is that there's a command in, in this passage. And the command is Jesus commanding a, satan, a satanically filled Judas. So essentially, essentially, Jesus is commanding Satan. What you need to do, go do it quickly. That, that what you see here is, <clears throat> is that Jesus is completely in control. Is that when Jesus Christ in his humanity, when he chooses to flex his divine muscles that every creature in heaven and earth must freeze and bow down and obey and listen, that Satan has no power over the sovereign plan of God, that even the demons shudder and need to obey. And so all things are under Jesus' hand. <clears throat> so Judas, he goes. Now I want to ask the question once again, why would Judas betray Christ? And for the record, Judas did not leave some horrible church experience. So it's not because Judas got burned by the church because the church wasn't established yet. <clears throat> the church was not yet launched. Judas did not leave because somehow he deconstructed his Christianity. The resurrection was not complete. Christianity still needed to be birthed. The gospel was yet to be complete. He was not leaving legalism or spiritual abuse. He was not turned away by some hypocritical Christians. No, Jesus, uh, Judas betrayed the sinless, compassionate, humble, loving Jesus Christ. There is no excuse for his treachery. Why would Judas betray Christ? It's not because of the church or because of his misunderstanding of Christianity. We mentioned earlier the reason why, and we mentioned in earlier sermons, that Judas was disappointed by Jesus' plan to be crucified for the sins of man. Judas wanted the messianic kingdom of the prophets now. He followed Jesus, hoping to benefit from his proximity to the messianic king. And so essentially, he figured, if I get close to Jesus, I will have access to everything I've ever wanted. Political power, economic privilege, and societal prestige. But Jesus came with a different type of power. Not, not political power, not military power, but spiritual power. And he came not to grant us necessarily economic privileges, but heavenly privileges. And not societal prestige, but the honor of being children of God. An inheritance that is eternal and that we get to be called sons and daughters of God. And he gives us the prestige of having to say our sins are forgiven. In the end, everything in its glory that Jesus came to offer failed to meet Judas's expectations. And allow me to preach this into your hearing, is that Judas was willing <clears throat> to follow Jesus of the prophets, but not Jesus of the gospels. He wanted Jesus prophesied, but he rejected Jesus crucified. He wanted the king without the cross, and I'm speaking to some of us today, that he wanted the benefits of kingdom citizenship without the cost of genuine discipleship. He wanted the benefits of kingdom citizenship, the glories of being part of the kingdom of God on earth, without the cost of genuine discipleship. So when Jesus came and said, well, Judas, I'm not coming as king of Israel right now. I'm coming as the crucified king, and if you want to follow me, you are not going to sit in a palace right now. You're going to take up your cross, and you're going to be my servants, and, my, and you're going to wash people's feet as we saw last week. And Judas is like, I want nothing to do with that. Now, verse 28 tells us his motives were so hidden that the other disciples had no idea what was happening, that he continued to play the part. And so this leads us to point number three, that is Jesus is betrayed by a disciple of darkness. He's so deceived, Judas is, that he's, he was in darkness even before Satan entered him. And notice in verses 28 to 30 that he continues to fake it. Verse 28 says, 
Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him, meaning nobody understood why Jesus was, was saying certain things to Judas. They thought Judas was okay. Now, verse 29, some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Right? So he's so deceptive. We saw earlier in, in an earlier chapter in John 12 where Judas is trying to say, why don't we give this money to the poor? Why don't we sell this perfume? What a waste. Let's give this to the poor. Right? So he's basically deceived his fellow disciples that he loves the poor, that he's the faithful steward of the money bag, which he was pilfering and stealing and embezzling money from. And so he played the part so well. His heart was so hardened. He was willing to deceive the Savior of the world until he realized, all the way through, until he realized, oh man, I'm not going to get what I want. His expectations are not met that he hardens his heart. And finally, he sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. So verse 30, it says, after receiving, receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And then it says it was night. And again, John is very symbolic. John's very symbolic. John's not trying to tell you what time it is. Why? Because in verse 29, it mentions a feast. Everybody knows that this is the Passover feast. And every Jewish person knows that you, you, you celebrate and you partake of the Passover feast at nighttime. So it would have been useless for John to let you know, well, we're having this meal and it happened to be nighttime. No, no, no. He's talking about spiritual darkness that Jesus is soon going to go to the cross and, and Jesus is entering darkness. He's going to be betrayed. He's, he has been betrayed and night symbolizes the nearness of the cross. Also that the kingdom of, of darkness is at work. That Satan has entered one of Jesus's inner circle, one of his disciples, and now one of his disciples is going to go and betray him. Now there are many who have professed to be Christians. And we all know these people whom we love and we pray for them. And there are some today, maybe in this room, who are considering turning away from Jesus or who have turned away from Jesus. Because you or they realize that Christian discipleship, according to the New Testament, once you read the New Testament, is not what you signed up for. You signed up thinking that Jesus was going to help you find your purpose in life, and that's part of it, but he called you to so much more, and you're like, that's not what I signed up, signed up for. Somebody handed you, you know, a book saying Jesus is going to give you your best life now, and you realize, oh man, the suffering keeps coming, and, you, and you're like, this is not what I signed up for. The more and more we realize that Christianity comes with difficulty, the more people will be disappointed, and they will have to question and consider, were they ever truly converted to begin with? You see, that's what's happening. If someone like Judas sees the light but prefers still to go into the darkness, that's bad. It's one thing to be lost. It's one thing to be an unbeliever all your life and, and never tasted the light. It's another thing to have experienced so much of the light, to be so close to Christ, only to walk away from him after seeing what Jesus is all about. That is a dark place to be. That's when you see that the darkness has overcome this person, and that's Judas. Judas is just like the false believer. This is not the unbeliever. This is not the seeker. Okay, this is the false believer who has proximity to Christ, learned about Christ by attending church, experienced Christian service, maybe even served with other Christians only one, one day in a way where it's so sad to walk away because Jesus failed to meet your expectations. You see, false Christians betray Christ because they are betrayed by their own false expectations. False Christians betray Christ because they are betrayed by their own false expectations. And that leads once again to the big idea I gave you at the beginning of the message. The big idea again is that Jesus came to fulfill God's plan, came to fulfill the scriptures, not the expectations of man. Jesus came to fulfill God's plan, not the expectations of of man. Put another way, Jesus came to fulfill the scriptures, not the expectations 
of whatever we plan, that whatever parts of the scriptures that we like, right? It's easy to pick and choose which Jesus we like from the Bible. I like the Jesus who's loving. Well, that's great. Some people, and you shouldn't be like this, I only like the mean, you know, Jesus who sends people to hell. Well, that's a little harsh, you know? And so some, we pick and choose. I only like the Isaiah 6 Jesus sitting on the throne. I only like the Jesus and the prophets that the prophets predicted. I only like the book of Revelation Jesus. I only like the Jesus who walked around in sandals. You know, I don't know. You know, you gotta look at the whole scriptures and say, dude, this is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, from the beginning to the end, we have to see that he came to fulfill all of the scriptures and all of the scriptures convict us and inform us of what it means to be a Christian. There is a New Testament vision of discipleship. And I don't want you to be disappointed. I mentioned in the beginning, I keep mentioning over and over that we need to be more winsome. This was also mentioned in our Daniel Sunday School this morning that we got to be, we got to be sharp. We got to be thinkers. But we got to be missional. Meaning we got to be missional theologians. We got to engage this world. We got to think clearly. We got to see how we feel as well. We got to think clearly about our emotions and our thoughts and about issues. We need to become more winsome so that Christ will use us to win some. Not all. For Christ. We need to become more winsome in our thinking and our feeling and our living so that Christ will use us to win some for Christ. We need to be more resilient because when the world presses against our idols of comfort, safety, and security, I am afraid that many professing Christians will not be equipped. Will not be equipped. And so the comfortable, suburban, evangelical box church is, is equipped to one, attract seekers and other Christians. And that's not a bad thing. But we are not equipped, we're ill-equipped to have our physical, our financial, and our emotional comfort stripped away. Let me say that once again. The suburban evangelical box church is well-equipped to, one, attract seekers, and, because we offer a lot of great programs, and other Christians. So if you're already a Christian, or if you're at least friendly to Christians, welcome. But we are ill-equipped to be Christians, to have our physical, physically be harmed, to have our finances taken away if we're persecuted, or to have our emotional comfort stripped away. And so we need to strengthen our thinking and our resilience. We need to train ourselves to be missional theologians. We need to make disciples of Jesus who are equipped with one, a theological framework why? So that we can think clearly in a world where we're in a thera therapeutic world right now, quote unquote, where mental illness is on the rise, where people are over inundated with ideas and thoughts and polarism and everything in between and politics and everything else on social media that stresses us out and the hustle bustle of constant uncertainty in this world. We need to make disciples of Jesus who are equipped with a theological framework so that we can think clearly in a world where mental illness is on the rise. We need to be trained in spiritual disciplines so that we can navigate our emotions in a world where every single trial we face is called trauma. So your feelings, you have feelings. Feelings are real, feelings are important. Your emotions, how do you govern your emotions? Spiritual disciplines. So it's one thing to have the theological framework to know how to think clearly about issues, but when you get angry, when you get sad, when your thoughts become to start to overcome you and you fall into depression, how do you navigate your emotions? Spiritual disciplines, prayer, med meditation on scripture, scripture, right? Allowing yourself to have silence and solitude with God's word and to think clearly and to, and to process your, your emotions and your feelings. Spiritual disciplines. And then... We need to grow in courage. I need to be more courageous. You need to be more courageous. We need to grow in courage. Encouraged, yeah, we need to be encouraged. But we need to grow courageous. Otherwise, we will be eaten alive. We need to be salt and light in a world of moral decay and darkness. The only way we can engage this world with love is if we go courageously. We need to be courageous Christians. But I really think that you will be courageous when you know the Bible so well 
that you're confident in, in thinking clearly, that you can navigate in your mind clearly what the Bible teaches. And also, you can control your emotions by subjecting them to the Holy Spirit because you've exercised spirit-filled spiritual disciplines that you have emotional strength. Not that you won't struggle with, with, with like, you know, the, the mental illness is real, okay? I'm not putting that down. Or that you won't struggle with emotional um, despair, but you will know how to navigate and your church has equipped you. I'm hoping that's our vision and our dream, but that you will be co- courageous. I'm gonna ask you a question and I expect the answer to be no. The question is this, do you feel, if you are a Christian teacher, Christian principal, Christian business worker, meaning you, don't, you, you work in a real dark place, if you're in HR, do you feel the First Chinese Baptist Church of Walnut, SCBC Walnut, has equipped you to survive? And the answer is, is, if it's no, then we need to get better at that. We've done a lot of great things for your kids. We keep doing that, right? We've done things for the youth. We've had great fellowship for you. We've given you great food. Have we equipped you? When, when your kids come home and they're like, Mom and Dad, I have these ideas and, and I'm in TK and they gave me this transgenderism thing. Parents, do you feel equipped? I think it would be crazy if, if we, like, you don't want to get kicked out of school, but if we had this thing where you guys paid for it, where we had all these t-shirts where the kid just says, teacher, I'm praying for you. If you put Jesus, you get kicked out of school, right? Teacher, uh, teacher, I'm praying for you. And if there's any Christian teachers out there, you have all these kids, whatever school districts we're in, in the public schools, and you have these FCBC kids sitting there, and they don't, I mean, some of our kids, they, they better act well, you know, and it just says, teacher, I'm praying for you. And that Christian teacher who can't say they're a Christian says, oh my goodness, who are all these kids with blue shirts every Wednesday? That would be amazing, right? I mean, how do you engage the world more winsomely to get in there when they won't let you in? Have we equipped you? I think the answer is no, that we've preached well, we've preached the Bible, we've stayed faithful, but I think we want this fight, do we not? Those of us who are 50 and younger, this is our time. No one else is going to do it for us. Our parents are going to do it for us. Big Eva, big evangelicalism, while they're fighting about politics, they're not going to do it for us. The Southern Baptist Convention is not going to do it for us. We need to step up. And now is the time. How are we going to do this? October, I know the small group leaders are praying. They're praying and so we don't have answers yet, but for the small group leaders, they're, they're praying about how to implement some type of disciple-making training in small groups because there's majority of you guys are in some type of group. Let me click to the next slide. If you could help me click to the next slide upstairs. I'm going to move out of the way. There's this book. Okay, I, I, I couldn't choose Wayne Grudem because you guys don't like to read. All right? But in October... Okay, I mentioned moving from consumer programs where you just come and consume knowledge to actually tra- training you. Starting October, we have to train teachers. And so here's what we're going to do. There will be three Sunday school classes still in English adult. Okay, there will be the men's study, the women's study, and they will all be Bible study oriented, and those will be excellent. The general class, rather than simply teaching you Christian theology, we'll do this in three quarters. Uh, we will teach Christian theology, Gabe, Lee and I will teach, and you have to read the book. You have to read this book, Christian Theology by Christopher Morgan. Okay, you have to read this book to, to participate in the class. For the, from October to December, it's only this much. Okay? Then another third and another third. If you watch TV at all, you have time to read. The choice is yours. You don't have to attend this class. You don't have to be equipped. But I don't want you to be ill-equipped. And what Gabe and I are going to do, instead of preparing Sunday schools, we will, be, we will be ready. Is that we're hoping that you will read what we read. And we're hoping that there's, because I, I, I expect only 20 of you, because nobody wants to read in our church, that you will show up, and rather than lecturing you through Christian theology, we will begin to discuss. What, what was it that you read? If you had to teach this to children which, which topics would you emphasize? And let's talk about, let's equip each other. If you had to teach this to women, we're talking about the image of God. What are things that are important to women? I, I want a woman who has read this to tell me. If you had to teach this 
And, and, and this theology is talking about objective truth, but you're dealing with a world who doesn't uh, believe in objective truth. Or, or, or we're dealing with uh, LGBTQ plus um, agenda. Like, how does this stand? You, if, you're, if you're stuck there trying to define, in that conversation, trying to define marriage, you're not going to get anywhere. You've got to navigate the conversation differently and then bring it back. How will you do it? If your kids come home asking you questions, do you know your theology? So this is basic systematic theology. But rather than lecturing to you, you need to read what we read. Okay? You read it. You come. We equip you. And out of this will come the next generation of Sunday school teachers, children's workers. Let me say some more. Just allow me to preach a little bit. All right? So we had, we had Summer Spark. It was excellent. Excellent. VBS, right? Excellent. All these children who came to Summer Spark, if they're going home to a Christian home, that is wonderful because they're coming into the light, learning about stuff. They're, they're learning about Jesus and they go home where they have Christian parents who are going to like reinforce this stuff. But we're trying to reach the community. So what if you have these kids who come and they hear about Summer Spark and they're, they're hearing these Bible studies and, and so, so seeds are planted and they're learning about Jesus and, and we send them back home into darkness. They're going back home into homes where parents are not saved, not reinforcing these things. They're going to schools where it's not reinforcing these, these things. So if you're serving in children's ministry, you better believe that you're on the front line, that you are so important. Don't look at yourself, oh, I'm children's ministry, I'm not the big boys. You are the big boys. Because for some of those kids, you are the only spiritual parent they have until Jesus saves their parents. And so sometimes we need the Chinese congregations to help us to engage some of those parents. Right? That's where we got to work together. Right? You have to understand what we're up against. So, so if those kids start asking you questions, can you go even deeper and engage? And so we want to equip you. Okay, we want to equip you, not just with Christian theology, but Christian theology, and then to engage a post-Christian world. And I don't have full jurisdiction over other ministries, so when the pastors meet for our staff retreat, we'll continue to talk about how we can implement. And if we can implement in 2023, if we can get 25% of our ministries to move from simply consumer, where we're just giving you information, to training, and then 50% in 2024, that's pretty good. And obviously there's going to be some ministries where it just has to keep you, like children's. Children's are coming, they're not all Christian. That's got to be something where you're just feeding them. But in all our other ministries, in the English congregation, can we slowly move towards training resilient and winsome disciples? You pray about it. Pray about it, okay? And be with us as we go together as a church. We need every single one of us to step up. All right, let me pray. Father, we come before you and we know, Lord, the time is now. No one's gonna do this for us. No one's gonna do this for us. We, as the church, not just FCBC, but churches, gospel-proclaiming churches, it's time for us to be winsome and resilient. It's time for us to be salt and light. And, but we have been equipped with good truth, but now we gotta know how to use that sword. Teach us, Lord. Give us the resources we need as a church. I pray that we as a church will be united together on this. Lord, I pray, Lord, if there's anybody in here today who does not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that you would save them. Lord, help us, each of us, to consider the cost of following Jesus Christ. It takes time. It will cost us. Help us to take up our cross. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. All God's people said, amen. Let's sing.